0: This morning, I have the uh, privilege of, of preaching the word this morning to you, and we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. And I have the distinct challenge of trying to give an overview of the whole book uh, this morning. And many of you have been asking me and saying, hey, we're looking forward to the series. We're looking, you know, when's it starting up? And that's a good question. Uh, Today we're going to be going kind of just sky high over the book of Esther and looking at an overview, looking at some themes, some things to, to think about as you read the book of Esther. Um, but then we'll get into the, the details of it at later dates. So the last week of December, we'll start with the first couple chapters of the book of Esther. And then whenever I have opportunity to preach throughout the year, we'll come back to the book of Esther. So it's not going to be a, uh, a solid study. It'll be broken up over the next year or so. So I'm looking forward to, to preaching the book of Esther. Uh, it's, it's good. And there's a lot that we can learn about God's work and how God deals with us as human beings through the book of Esther. So... Hopefully you have uh, read the book, maybe over this last week in preparation for today, hopefully. And I want to just start out with, with a question for you. How did God work in your life this last week? You don't have to actually answer, but think about that. How did God work in your life this last week? Now, for some of you, that might be an easy question to answer, yet you'll have something right off the bat. Maybe there was something big that happened this last week. Or maybe you just had an experience where you you knew God was working. Some of you may be sitting there going, I don't know. Did he? Did he work in my life this last week? Hmm, good question. And some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, I don't even know if there is a God. So if there isn't, how would he work? And all of these are great questions, and I think all of these have to do with the message of the book of Esther. Because uh, as you see up here, uh, kind of the the theme for this book that we have uh, decided on is to look at. Esther in light of God's veiled sovereignty in this book. Now, you may think veiled sovereignty sounds kind of like a strange theme, but I think it's a good one because, number one, it has kind of a, uh, a kingly aspect to it. And if you've read the book of Esther, you know that she becomes queen. And so we have a nice veil up there. But also to be veiled means to be hidden or to be obscured. By something, And as you read through the book of Esther, you might be tempted to just think, well, here's just a set of circumstances that happened to this woman, and, you know, God wasn't in it because, as I'll mention later, God isn't even mentioned in the book. So this is just something that happened, right? Well, no, I don't think so. God is at work in the book of Esther. It's just not obvious how he does it. And we'll see that as we go through it. But I ask you, how has God worked in your life? Because a lot of the things that we see in the book of Esther, we see in our own lives. We see better sometimes in hindsight how God works Rather than at the moment, it's not like there's blaring signs and sirens going off saying, hey, God is at work right now. A lot of the times it's, it's more subtle than that when God is working, but he is working in our lives. Philippians 1, 6 says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a promise that we have, that if God has began a good work in you, he will complete it. And how does he do that? Well, a lot of the times it's just through the mundane things that we face in our lives. And unfortunately, sometimes we forget that God is at work in those little things. We see them just as common. Oh, everybody goes through this. But the challenge is to see your life not as just a common set of circumstances that come for no apparent reason, but to see them as purposed by God in order to do what he wants to do in your life, to bring to completion the good work that he has began in your life. And it comes... Every day, through little events, through big events, through events that we would think might just be common and for no good reason, but they do serve a purpose. They all work together to bring us to completion, as Paul says. And there's this false dichotomy that a lot of us believe without knowing it. And that dichotomy is that there are holy things and sacred things and religious things in this world, and then there are things that are just common everyday things that we go through. Like when we're here at church, this is a sacred place, right? It's a church. It's holy. We've been singing praise to God, and so it's special, right? But then we go to work on Monday, and, well, that's work. That has nothing to do with church, right? Or does it? Should it? Absolutely. Because there is no separation between sacred, secular, holy, unholy. For the believer, it all works together. And God uses all of it. The mundane, the special, the hard, the good, all of it. And we see that in the book of Esther. God sovereignly works all details for his good. So let's turn to the book of Esther. If you have uh, one of the Bibles that's provided out there in the chairs, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. Uh, It's on page 383. And we don't have time to uh, look through the whole book or read through the whole book. But I do want to read one chapter. I want to read chapter four. Because in my mind, as, as I read this over and over and as I studied, I see chapter four as a really pivotal moment in this book. And it's not necessarily the climax of the action in this book, but it is the climax in the life of Esther. And we see in this chapter where Esther goes from uh, a woman who is just kind of going along with the flow to a woman who has decided in her heart to act. So as we read through this, look for that. So I'm going to start reading. Esther chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, pause. What had been done? Well, a lot. There were three chapters before this. And to give you the very short synopsis, you have a godless king who uh, on a whim decides to Uh, get rid of his queen because she offended him and in order to make a statement to everybody in the kingdom he says this isn't gonna happen and so she's gone and everybody knows about it so that none of you other wives will think of dare offending your husbands well after a while though he gets lonely and he wants a wife again so One of his helpers has a great idea. Why don't you just gather up all the maidens in the land and have them come before you? Great, good idea. Test them all out. Hey, Esther, she's great. So she becomes queen, and there's a plot to to kill the king, but it's found out by Esther and Mordecai. And instead of them being acknowledged and, and praised for Uh, their part in saving the king, this other dude, Haman, comes into the picture and and steals the glory. And he's promoted and he's, he's given rights above anyone else in the kingdom. And he hates Mordecai and the Jews. And so he plans to kill the Jews, basically. Because of his hatred for Mordecai, he said, on a certain day, Everyone, attack the Jews. Have at it. Kill them. Take their stuff. Free game. So that's what it means by when Mordecai learned all that had been done. Let's continue. Mordecai tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, she, uh, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews." Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, after this, we, we see amazing things. The, the Jews are, are miraculously protected. Haman, the guy who hated the Jews, who wanted them dead, ends up dead. And a lot of those details, I just don't have time to go into. <laughs> You'll have to wait. But I love this chapter for the, the fact that we see in Esther uh, this this moment where she is challenged to act. And we see that even amidst these crazy circumstances that she's in, she decides... This is the time. I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow what I what I believe to be the Lord's leading. Let's pause for just a minute and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I pray that as we continue on in this book, that you will help us to see who you are, that you will help us to see your authority and your sovereignty and your work in the story of Esther, and help us to be able to understand that just as you worked in this story, you work in our lives. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your care for your people. Lord, will you help me to think and speak clearly, and I pray that you would help uh, all of us here to, to understand some of the important uh, themes and issues with the book of Esther. But more importantly, Lord, help us to be um, to be inspired to love you more and to be encouraged to talk of your salvation. Lord, we ask this in your name, Amen. So we've just briefly kind of touched on the book. We've read this, this chapter, and I've told you that it's an important chapter. But let's kind of take another step back and just get to know the book a little bit. Uh, if you have your bulletin, you can pull out the, the page with notes, and there's, there's three simple things that I want to cover. I want us to get to know the book. I want us to see the way that God works and then I want us to leave with, with some hope. We're not going to get through all of the book of Esther, but I think that there are some key things that we can understand from this book that we can take and that we can use in our lives this week and uh, throughout our whole lifetime. So first off, getting to know the book. Uh, let's start with the cast of characters. So. As I mentioned before, there is a king involved in this story. King, are you ready for this? I've been working on this, and I don't know. know. Hazawirus. Doesn't that sound okay? <laughs> it's a strange name. King Hazawirus is the king of the Persian Empire that is also known as Xerxes. There is uh, some debate on exactly which king is talked about in the book of Esther, but uh, most scholars and most commentary uh, commentators come back to Xerxes or the Hebrew uh, translation of that Ahasuerus. And I thought really hard and long about just calling him Ahaz, but I'm, I'm going to try and use his proper name, um, this is the same Xerxes that is famous for attempting to conquer the Greek empire, but he failed, and there are some uh, classic stories of, of battles, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, and all of this history that goes along with Xerxes and his attempt to, uh, to reign the over the whole world, and in particular to conquer the Greeks, but he couldn't do it. He didn't do it. And the book of Esther is, is set at a time where most people think that the, the first chapter or so of the book of Esther happened before his conquest of the Greeks, and then there was a about a four-year period where he went out and he tried to Uh, conquer, and he tried to pillage, but it didn't work. And he's coming back, and he's sad, and he's distraught. And this is what many people think is the time where he says, I need a new wife, because he's coming back to an empty house. And so part of the, the setting of this book has to do with King Ahasuerus and his failure to conquer, his failure to do what He desired to do. We see throughout this book that King Ahasuerus is really just a a very flat character, flat in the sense that he doesn't really change. And he is a guy who is compelled by his instincts, compelled by uh, just base desires for sexuality, for fame, for notoriety, and everything that he does in this book, you can see that. It's clear. This is someone who is just driven by his own base desires, and he never changes throughout the book. The next person that we want to look at for just a second in this cast of characters is Haman. Haman kind of comes out of nowhere. As I said before, there's a plot to kill the king, it's thwarted because of Esther and Mordecai uh, informing the king, and at the very point where you would expect something good to happen to Mordecai, all of a sudden Haman shows up, and Haman, if, if you look at uh, chapter three, verse one, it says, after these things, talking about the, the plot to kill the king and, and it. Not working. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So out of nowhere comes Haman. And again, here's a guy, as you read the story, motivated by pride, motivated by arrogance, ruthless. Willing to kill people who don't show him the honor that he thinks he deserves. And an agagite. Ringing any bells? Some of you are nodding. Yes, yes. Yeah. Do you remember when King Saul was supposed to go out and destroy the Amalekites? But he didn't. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The Amalekites were a bad people. And they were a constant hindrance to the nation of Israel. And God had told Saul, go take care of the Amalekites and leave nothing. Kill the king. Don't take any spoils. Well, King Saul went out, and he did a pretty good job destroying most of the people. And his men took some of the spoils, and when Samuel comes and talks to Saul, you remember this is the the classic where uh, Samuel goes, "Um, Saul, what is that that I hear? He hears the bleeding of sheep, and it's an indication that, They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And in fact, he finds out that they spared the life of King Agag, the Amalekite. And we don't have the exact lineage of Haman, tracing it all the way back to Agag. But the fact that he is called an Agagite, a lot of people think that he is a direct descendant of King Agag, whom Saul should have killed but didn't. And so we see in Haman a personification of, of someone who is against Israel, God's chosen people, and always has been, in fact. The story in 1 Samuel 15 with the Amalekites goes back even further to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, um, it says this, Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And that was at the time Moses said this right after a battle with the Amalekites. And that was the battle where uh, the people were fighting against the Amalekites. And Moses had his hands raised. And as long as his hands were raised, the Israelites won. But as soon as he dropped them, the Amalekites would start to win. And it's at that time that this rivalry between the Amalekites and the Israelites is really formed, and it says right there that the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And it carries on up until this time of the Book of Esther. And we have this guy, Haman, who, it's strange because he really shouldn't be there in the Persian Empire, but he is. But that's kind of like how the Jews really shouldn't be there in the kingdom of Persia, but they are. So Haman in this story is, he's the bad guy. He's the real bad guy. King has Wiris. He's a bad guy too, but he's just kind of... uh. He's just kind of the not-so-bad guy. He's just doing things that that he wants to do, and Haman is the guy who is actively against the Jews in this book. Well, moving on in our cast here, we have Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew, and he is uh, someone who is thought of well. It's said that he... He is in the gate of the city with the leaders. So he is someone who has influence. He has some sort of position in uh, the city of Susa where this is all set. And he is a a wise person. He's looked up to and respected. And he has adopted his cousin, Esther, and raised her as his own. Now, again, I, I said that, the Jews really shouldn't be there. Well, why shouldn't they be there? Because the setting, again, is during the time of the Israelite captivity. And I'm happy to be able to read this in its actual context. Jeremiah 29. Listen to what Jeremiah 29 says. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles This was written by the prophet Jeremiah about the nation of Israel, who was, because of their unfaithfulness to God, taken into exile by Babylon. And he says in these verses that you're gonna be there for a while. You're gonna be there for 70 years. So make yourself comfortable. Get used to it, because you're gonna be there. And go on with life. Have your kids get married. Find good wives for them. Find good husbands for them. Work in the city. Pray for the city. Pray for the good of the city. Even though it's Babylon and it's an evil pagan city, pray for the good of that city because you are there in it. And after 70 years, he says, I'm going to bring you back to the land. Now, this happened when... When Ezra and Nehemiah started to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple and all of that, that happened after those 70 years. But there were some people who really kind of liked it there in Babylon. And for various reasons, they stayed there. Mordecai and Esther are some of those who stayed in Babylon and did not go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild, to help um, the nation come back to strength. So they are there in Babylon. They're there when uh, the Persians come and take over and the next world empire starts. And that is the, the scene for Mordecai and Esther. They're in a foreign land And yet they're Jews. And have you noticed something weird about their Jewishness? Are they proud about it? Anybody who read Esther? Just keep it on the down low. (laughs) I mean, we don't really want people to know that we're Jews, but, you know, let's carry about our business and we'll just let that be our secret. So Kind of an interesting thing here. Is that good, or is that bad? That's a good question. On to Esther. Esther is a young woman. She's beautiful. It says that. She's very beautiful. And Mordecai has taken her and raised her. And when King Ahasuerus comes back after his defeat and decides I need me a wife, she is one who gets caught up in this whole uh, enterprise of finding the king a new wife. And it says that she wins favor with many different people. And she apparently is just swept up in this story that is way bigger than herself. And yet we see through this book that she comes to be the main deciding factor in a lot of what goes on in the book of Esther. She's just kind of swept up into this, and she has this point in chapter 4 where she has to really decide, oh, am I just going to go with the flow here, or am I going to do something? And we see that she, she makes a good decision, I think, and she does something. So that's the, the characters that are involved here. Next point there is, says some concerns, and I've already kind of hinted at this. There are some concerns with the book of Esther. First off, where is God? If you read through the book of Esther closely, you won't see his name, you won't see people pray. You won't see people worship God. You just kind of don't see God in this book. Which leads a lot of people to say, well, why is this even in the Bible? This should be tossed out of here. Or, well, see, you know, God can't do everything, and sometimes Jews just have to work for themselves. Right? Well, no. That is a challenge of this book. The fact that God is not specifically uh, called by his name. And yet, how can you read this book and not see God? One of the challenges of the book of Esther is to look at the book of Ex- Esther in the bigger context of the Bible and what is going on with the people of Israel and how God is bringing about his will in their lives. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time this morning to worship you, to begin to look at the book of Esther. And again, we recognize that you are the sovereign. You are the one who is in control of all things, and uh, even, even things that would apparently be, be bad. So, Lord, we are grateful for who you are and what you do in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.